earn. In your Bibles, if you would, to Luke, the 13th chapter. And we want to read a passage of Scripture in your hearing that Jesus left as he conversed with a group of people. And I suppose that you could say that what he was aiming at was the need of an individual to see his own faults separate and apart from the faults of other people. You know, it's real often that you hear a person say, well, yes, I did wrong, but so did so-and-so. Or when you're caught doing something that you shouldn't do, and it seems like the Lord has a way of catching us doing things we ought not to do. It's easy to say, but what about what they did? And I think the tenor of the particular message found in Luke 13 is is parallel to that. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Are those eighteen upon whom the tower of Shalom fell, and slew them, Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And you may be seated. I want, by the help of the Lord today, to point your attention to your own particular need of repentance. Now, repentance is something that is spoken of in reference to people who are vile, people who are criminal, people who have a bad reputation. But according to the Scripture, repentance is something that should be, should be associated with all lives and the closer the association, the better the character of the individual becomes. In other words, great, reputable people should be, should be associated with this particular subject more so than anybody else. When Jesus prayed the Sermon on the Mount, he taught us, to repent. He said, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation. Now that was a true prayer of repentance while Jesus was talking to us about our particular need and how we should pray. Not only was he doing that, but he was praying himself. He actually was praying himself. I know that you may ask the question, 
then why did Jesus repent if Jesus was a perfect individual who had no need of repentance? And the Bible does bear witness of that, that uh, Jesus was sinless. The, the whole purpose of repentance is to keep oneself from sin. I said the whole purpose of repentance is to keep oneself from sin. While we usually think that repentance is associated with sin from the standpoint of that we must first commit the sin before we repent. Now it is true that if sin has been committed that you need to repent or seek for forgiveness. However, repentance is not altogether just seeking God for forgiveness. And this is what we want to to deal with this morning in this Bible lesson. Now I'd like for you to turn with me, if you would, back to the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, <clears throat> verse 16. <clears throat> and we want, to, we want to talk first about uh, asking God to forgive you as a result of sin that you have committed. Hebrews 12:16, the Bible says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterwards, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Now one translation says, though he cried day and night. Now that simply means that 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 uh, Esau was a man who realized that he had made a mistake, realized the error of his of his decision, and he cried about it day and night, but he did not repent. So repentance is more than just crying and saying, God, I'm sorry. It may entail that, but it's not altogether that. For you and I both have seen men and women, people of all walks of life, who would get down on their knees and cry a bucket of tears, so to speak, and get up and go and do the same thing again. Repentance, according to the scripture, is turning around. It's the walking away. It's the making up your mind. Just like a man would be flying in an airplane north and he decides all of a sudden he wants to go south. And so he turns it around. And he heads in a different direction. He must first make up his mind that he needs to turn around. And in making up your mind... Certainly you can cry and you can, you can pray and you can seek God. And there are a lot of people in our world who realize that the way that they live is wrong. They realize that they are committing transgressions against the law of God day after day after day. And many of those people, they feel horrible about it. They cry about it. They even pray about it. But they don't go past that. They keep doing exactly what they have been doing. Now, back in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, 
there were ceremonial practices concerning leprosy. Now, I will not have you to turn back there, but I will call your attention to the passage of Scripture that, that I plan to speak from, and that's found in Leviticus, the 14th chapter. There were several types of leprosy, but all leprosy in the Bible is associated or it is compared to sin. Now, leprosy in the body, the normal leprosy of the body, is a particular disease that usually starts out as a skin disease and later on attacks the vital organs of the body. It is progressive. And then, of course, uh, uh, you and I know that the, be, having no cure for leprosy, that in most cases it's fatal. But uh, uh, it starts out as a very little simple uh, sore or pimple on the body. And uh, later on it spreads and then, of course, spreads to other part, parts of the body. Around the eyes it uh, quite often will appear. It'll heal over. It'll break back out. Uh, uh, it'll run and fester and and later on it begins to eat away like a cancer and and uh, the condition gets so horrible now in in the old testament because of of uh, leprosy being so contagious that uh, when leprosy was detected uh, in an individual there were certain precautions that were taken right uh, away as a result of the detection of the leprosy the individual was sent to the priest and he was examined. Now, because the priest did not know for sure uh, if the man had leprosy because of the, the uh, 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 leprosy not having spread and, and uh, the symptoms not being there as it would be later, uh, they were simply sent back home and isolated and brought back in and tested at a later date. And they had particular ways in which they, they dealt with this. The, the ultimate in the dealing with a leper was that he was to take all of, uh, of his uh, personal uh, clothes and such, and he was to leave his household and leave his family, leave his children. He was to be cast outside of the community. And uh, when people would walk up to him or come near him, he was to cry with a loud voice, unclean, unclean, unclean. And people could not go near him as a result of his disease being so contagious. Now, in the book of Leviticus, there was another kind of leprosy, and I use the term another kind of leprosy because it's felt that it was not the type of leprosy that infected the body, but there was a kind of leprosy that came and infected the buildings. In Leviticus 14, there is uh, a type of leprosy that's mentioned that came and infected the block of the building. It was more like a mold or mildew type uh, uh, substance that would come and, and uh, get inside the building. Now, in uh, this particular passage of Scripture, the Bible tells us in Leviticus 14, verse 36, that... When leprosy was detected and the priests saw the leprosy, that one of the first things they did, they emptied out the house. They came and took all the furniture out of the house because this mold or this mildew type of leprosy that came into the house would, would get into the furniture. And uh, it would just grow there. And I don't know if you've ever tried to stop uh, mildew growth uh, or mold growth on, on a plaster wall or on a block wall. Uh, or not, but I'll assure you that it is a very, very difficult thing to do. 
we uh, we have a couple of rooms downstairs in which we allowed uh, uh, some flooding to occur and some mold started on the block walls and we have scraped those walls we have we have sealed those walls we've done just about everything we know to do and we can go in there and scrape the wall off it looks nice we can we can take and and seal the wall with all kinds of commercial sealer we can go in and paint it looks beautiful but i'll tell you what happens it reoccurs it just comes back and and uh, there's a definite place in the corner of this back room which uh, leaked there that we cannot stop. And then the second room down, or the third room uh, from the front, uh, there's a window there in which uh, we allowed some flooding to occur in the window well. It, it came inside of the room, and we have scraped that wall and painted that wall, and we have a Christian school in there, and we paint it every year, but it just reoccurs in the same spot. And we think we have it all. And then the ladies' restroom on the west end, uh, we have taken that west wall and we have scraped that wall and we have done everything that we know to do to that wall. And did you know that, that it just reoccurs? It's been painted and painted and painted and painted and painted. And somebody called my attention uh, to the situation lately and said, you know what we need to do? We need to come in here and we need to put styrofoam on the wall and strip the wall and then we need to put plaster on the wall and we need to paint it. That might stop it. Hopefully it will. But it just keeps occurring. And when you you you, you paint it uh, and, and you look at it and you think, my, this is going to last forever. It doesn't last very long though. There is a chemical reaction that takes place in that concrete after that concrete gets wet and that mold grows in it. And, of course, it, it is secreting acids. Uh, concrete does this. It gets harder with age as a result of uh, the release of acids. And, and this mold grows in that, and you cannot stop it. And we have scraped and scraped and scraped and scraped. I went over the paint company, and I, I explained this to the man over there, and I asked him, what should we do? He said, well, number one, build a new building. Good hope. <laughs> no, this is what he told me. He said, just build a new building. And I said, well, uh, we are planning on building a new building, but am I? He said, well, when you first build the building, before any mold or any mildew or anything occurs, you have to seal it. you got to keep it out because once it's in there, it's in there, and, and there's not anything that you can do about it. Now, you can scrape it every couple of years or so, and, and uh, you can treat it with this, that, and the other, but it's going to reoccur. Now, I didn't really think he was right because after we scraped it down, it looked just as perfectly normal as a new wall, and, and we sealed it. I thought, he doesn't know what he's doing. But I'll tell you, after three or four treatments, now I'm saying, amen. <laughs> he knows what he was talking about. <clears throat> it just keeps coming back, and it keeps coming back, and it keeps coming back. And, and we recently painted, you remember the day before our ball game when we worked here? We recently painted it. Did you, did you know that right where that mold or that mildew is on that wall, I can go down there and show you exactly. It's, it's making an outline already. Now what are we going to do? Now, you see, this is what happened in, in the... The Israelites' household, except the, the mold and the mildew there, was called leprosy. It was a different type of leprosy, but it was actually contagious to people. People could actually catch the stuff. and could get in your skin and rot your skin away. Now, 
the first thing they did, they took all the furniture out of the building. And then, of course, uh, they the, the priests came and they looked at the building and, and uh, uh, they examined the building very carefully. They went away after a, a few number of... A number of days had passed, uh, and after the building had been empty for a while, they came back and examined it again. And after they examined it this time, the Scripture tells us in verse 40, they tried to take and remove the stones out of the building that had the leprosy. And they thought, well, we'll take the stones out and we'll throw the stones away. We'll put new stones in. But sometimes you can't get it all that way. It's like a cancer in your body. You think you have all the cancerous cells as a result of your operation, but you leave one or you leave two, and the cells being so uh, small and being microscopic, uh, and the doctors are not able to detect that they're there. And after a while, those cells begin to multiply, they begin to grow, and you've got cancer again, just like you had before. And so they would take out a few of the stones... And put new stones in, plaster it up, leave the house empty, and then they would go back in. Now, if in the event that leprosy was in the walls still, and uh, the, after the new stones had been placed there, you know what they did? They then took and washed the whole house down with hyssop and, and, and ashes, and, and they took and they literally scraped the walls. They scraped and 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 they would apply the hyssop and scrape and scrape and scrape and scrape. Leave the house empty. Nobody could live there. Then the priest would come back at a later date and examine the building. If in the event that the leprosy had reoccurred in the building, they took the building and they tore it apart stone by stone and destroyed it. It was not fit for people to live in. It was deplorable. And they said, people can't live here. It's infected. We will destroy the building. Now, the reason why that God gives us such a careful description of leprosy and how we're to deal with it in the Old Testament is because leprosy is just like sin. When it infects the body, and all of us have an infection of sin in us. And the reason why is because we were born of man. When Jesus came in John the third chapter, he explained that a man needs to be born again. And then he goes on to say in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God came not into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was condemned already. And just as a scraping had to occur inside the building and, and uh, the, some of the stones had to be removed and, and it had to be washed down with hyssop. The heart of man, there are things that get in our heart that must be removed. There are various stones of greed and selfishness and lust and such that get in our hearts and, and the, the leprosy is so embedded. We have to remove those things. But not only remove those things, uh, uh, there's some uh, plastering of the Holy Spirit to seal 
our hearts against sin and iniquity that has to, to, to occur. This is the reason why Jesus said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think that Christians quite often need to pray. When I say quite often, I'm talking about on a daily basis. They need to pray, God, keep us away from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Because there are certain things that your human nature cannot withstand. And while you may have the powerful gift of the Holy Ghost inside of you, you need to pray, God, lead us not into temptation. There are certain things that, that God does not want you exposed to, and you need to cry out to God and ask God to, to, to somehow alter your paths. The Bible says the steps of a good man are directed to the Lord. Now, there may be times in which you are prayed up and on fire, and, and it doesn't make any difference what comes your way. The devil can't tempt you with it. But there are times that you are at the mercy of God, that you're weak, and, and you're susceptible. And then, of course, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that cleanses the heart. Peter said, we're not redeemed with corruptible things as gold and silver, but by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the hyssop was applied to the walls and, and washed down and they were scraped, we have to take the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and apply it to our walls, the walls of our heart. And there has to be a scraping process that takes place inside of us. Now, you see, the thing that occurred in Esau was that he understood that he had made a mistake. He knew that he had made a mistake. And, and he understood the, the error uh, of his way. And, and he cried and prayed, well, why? The blessings of God will not rest upon me like the blessings of God should rest upon me. And my life is not a life destined for success as Jacob. He understood all those things. And he cried about it, and he cried day after day after day, but he didn't repent. I say, but he did not repent. Now, godly sorrow is a very important ingredient as far as repentance is concerned, but godly sorrow alone is not repentance. Now, you see what happens sometimes, uh, we, we do things that we understand that's wrong and we've made a mistake and, and uh, we've been caught uh, making that mistake and, and so we, we simply say, I'm sorry. And, and we might be at the time, but, but there's no action taken in our life to, 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 to make sure that our paths uh, are changed, that our, that our direction has changed. Now, a typical example is you have a child who is caught doing something that he ought not to do. And you, you catch your child, okay? <clears throat> and you bring him in and you say, look, Tommy, you have been doing this and I have caught you doing this now a dozen times and I've had enough. Now, when you put your fist down and say, I've had enough to him, he thinks all he can think about is the belt or the paddle or sitting in a corner and... And wow, I'm going to be punished. Now, may I ask you an honest question? Now, what kid wouldn't cry if he knew he was going to be punished? I'll tell you what, I used to, in fact, when my, my, my mom, uh, my mom very rarely, only upon two occasions that I remember, said, wait till dad gets home. My mother knew how to take care of me, and she knew how to take care of all of us. 
In fact, I'd rather Dad catch me than her. <laughs> but she knew how. But every now and then, and I remember two different occasions in my life when she says, we're not going to do anything until Dad gets here. And I'll tell you what, the tears started flowing and I cried all afternoon. At that particular time, I remember we had an old well out in the back. We didn't have running water. The only running water we had was, Johnny, go run, get a bucket of water. <coughs> so I'd go out and draw a bucket of water and run back in the house. with. That was our running water. But uh, I remember getting out there, and I'll tell you what, I got down on the back side of that well. It was kind of in the shade there. And listen, I prayed all afternoon. God... I said, I'm sorry, and please don't let Dad get upset. Because when Dad did get upset, he was upset. And when he was upset, he knew how to upset you. And God, I want you... Listen, I, I prayed all afternoon. I prayed all afternoon. Well... I still remember the situation. When he came in, Mother explained it to him. He called me in, and, and uh, you know, just like the Lord performed a miracle, he didn't do much about it. He talked to me about it, and and I'd been crying, and I was sobbing. You know how kids get to sobbing and crying so that they, they lose their breath? <laughs> you know, and I was sobbing, and he said, No, wait just a minute, John, wait just a minute. I've been crying all day, and he didn't do much about it. Now, <clears throat> the bad thing was... I did it again. You know, and I found this out, that very rarely does true repentance occur when you're caught doing something and you're forced to repent as a result of the punishment that's coming. You know, it's a different thing. Occasionally I'll have somebody that'll call me up and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. And they come in, my heart is smitten with sorrow. I've been doing this, or I've been doing this, and I've been doing this, and I've been doing this, and they just weep and cry, God has convicted them. Why did you come in? Did, did somebody see you doing this or what? No, I just felt that I needed to come. Now, usually when this occurs, true repentance is taking place in the life. But it's a different thing. When you call somebody in and you say, did you do this? I didn't do it. No, nope. I, I didn't do it. Now, but, but now look, you know, I hate to be a judge in this matter, but there, we have two or three witnesses. Oh, you have? Sister so-and-so and brother so-and-so saw this occurring at a certain time. Oh, they did? Well, yeah, I, I did it. And all of a sudden they start crying. What are you going to do? You're going to take my Sunday school class away from me? I'm afraid we are. Oh, well, Brother God, I'm so sorry. You know God forgives. Yes, He does. Yeah. You know, God forgiving you is one thing. But the Bible says, He that is sin restores such a one. There's a difference in God forgiving you and the church restoring you. Our credibility has to be regained and built back. Now, we can't just let you have your Sunday school class back. Now, I found this out, that usually when people repent, and we use the term repent here, 
And I use it very sparingly. But usually when people repent like that, you know what usually happens? They do it again. Why? Because it was not a voluntary action on their part. They did it because they were caught. And you see, it appears that this is what happened to Esau. I'm not going to get the blessing. But Esau loved that way of sin. He was called a fornicator. And he liked that kind of lifestyle. And even though he knew he would not inherit his father's blessings, while he did inherit them in part, he knew the birthright privilege did not belong to him, and he cried day and night, but he did not turn away from his life, the kind of life he was living. And he kept doing exactly what he was doing. And so as a result, though he sought it carefully with tears, the Bible says he didn't repent. So repentance is not just crying. While it may include crying, it goes a step further than this. Now I have preached several messages on 2 Corinthians 7 verse 11, but I felt very definitely directed by the Holy Ghost to go there once again today. And I don't want to sound redundant, and just preaching the same thing over and over and over. But I feel that maybe we have somebody here today who is having a real struggle in their walk with God and that they need to hear what the Apostle Paul says about this. Second Corinthians 7, <clears throat> verse 10, The Bible says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. And certainly, you're not going to do any different than what you've been doing unless there is some sorrow that occurs in your life. You've got to feel sorry over the fact that you've done certain things. That's, that's only logical. And when you realize that you've done wrong, you say, hey, I've done wrong. I feel badly about this. I'm not going to do it anymore. Now, I, I really think it's possible to repent without crying. But most people cry because of the horribleness of sin. There are just some individuals, I, and I've seen people like that, that they could just read something and say, hey, I shouldn't be doing this, and they can turn away from it and not do it again. But I have also seen others who have come down to the altar. And by the way, for you who do not know, we have a place to kneel and pray on both sides of the pulpit here. And all of you who are here today, will be given a chance, if you like, to come and surrender your heart and your life to the Lord. We have Christian workers throughout the building who'd be glad to come and kneel with you and open the Bible and minister to you and encourage you and help you in any way possible to clear up anything in your life that's not right. But I've seen people come down here, and listen, I have seen them cry a bucket of tears. I've seen them feel so badly over what they were doing and the life that they were living that, that I mean to tell you, the tears just rolled and rolled and their eyes were red-rimmed. And, and I've seen wet spots on the altar where they have cried and prayed. But I've seen those same people get up and go away from here and never come to church again and never go past that point. Now, can you call that repentance? It is a part of repentance. 
And certainly we want to commend the individual for doing what he had done. But on the other hand, his repentance was not complete because that is as far as the individual got. Okay? For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, and this simply means never to be regretted. You need to pray to the point that you say, God, forgive me, and you feel that cleansing power of God taking place in your life, and you get up from that altar and you say, I will never regret what I have done. And you walk out of this place and you meet the world right smack dab in the face and you, and you see all the sin and all the iniquity that you once were involved in but you still feel good about that experience at the altar. And, it, and if you ever reach the place in which, which you are repenting over your repentance, in other words, you're feeling sorry over the fact you repented, you need to re-repent. Is there such a word? I just made it. <laughs> you need to make another trip. And you see, because that's what happens sometimes. People just cry and pray and they ask God to forgive them. And it lasts a day or so, but then they don't keep coming back to the altar. And as I said before, you see, our concept is you first have to do something wrong and then you ask for forgiveness. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus sought repentance carefully before he ever repented, before he ever sinned. And the secret to his sinless life was the fact that he, on a daily basis... Now, Jesus arose early in the morning and stayed up late at night. And many, many, many times the Bible tells us that Jesus was doing what? He was in the presence of God praying. Now, if Jesus was the Son of God, God manifested in human flesh. And if Jesus found it necessary to pray like this, who are we to think that we're an exception to he who was born outside of the prison bar and cell of sin like you and I. Who are we to think that we can live a sinless life without that? Now Jesus didn't always do what he wanted to do. And this is a reason why in the garden he said, Not my will. In other words, his flesh was saying, I don't want to do this. But there was something inside prompting him and saying, but you must do it. And he was saying, but I don't want to do it. But the final line was this, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. See? And the secret to his sinless life was that he constantly submitted so you see, repentance is not just saying, God, I've done this, forgive me, but repentance is submitting to God. It is a total surrender of one's life into the hands of a God who is able to keep oneself pure and unspotted from the world. Now, let's go on down and, and read in the scripture. The Bible says, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And sin destroys. Now, we're all smart enough to know that. Why? Because we see it all around us. John 10 and 10, The thief cometh not, but to kill and steal and destroy. 
You know, it's like the leprosy on the wall. Some people think, well, I can do this and I can do that. No, once it gets started, friend, you're going to have to scrape it and scrape it and paint it and paint it. And we have sealed and scraped and painted. And by the help of the Lord, we're going to keep sealing and scraping and painting because we want our Christian school to look good. And we want it to be a place in which people can come in and view it and look at it and say, oh, you got a first-class school here. But I'll tell you what, if we didn't keep up those repairs on a, uh, you know, on an annual basis there, of a regular basis, uh, it wouldn't look good. And it's that way in our hearts. It's that way in our life. Did you know the, the most precious individual in the world can develop a bad attitude and you don't want to be in their presence? True? And occasionally one of your better friends, you can be around them, and you know that something's happened to harden them. Some situation has come their way in which the sweetness of your fellowship with them has, has, has left. And now it's hard, it's, it's, it's cut and dried, and now it's judgmental and, and the attitude is bad. This is why people get so negative. Really. Have you ever seen a negative Christian? Well, you should not have ever seen one. But you do occasionally. And, and you know, it's really bad when you, you, you... There's some people that are just prone to be negative. I mean, they're just negative about everything. Everything's always bad. You know, I, I, dealt, I dealt with an individual... And prayed and cried and everything. And, and, and this individual was negative about everything. It doesn't make any difference. You know, the devil is, the devil's harder on me than he is everybody else. And, and you know, all my friends, they, they let me down quicker than your friends do, Brother Grant. You know, you've seen people like that. Everything is rotten and it stinks. And, you know, is there any good thing that ever happens in life to you? This individual said, not many. I said, well, have you tried praying about this? Yes, I did. I said, what happened? She said, it got worse. <laughs> you know? Oh, it got worse. <clears throat> really, I told Sister Grant one day, I said, you know, she'd make a very good cover girl for the book of Lamentations. <laughs> this is the most pathetic thing I've ever seen in my life. And you see, now this is what happens when a person does not fully repent, fully surrender, fully submit. And you see, the devil wants to get us all like that. And after a while, we get to thinking that the most beautiful thing on the face of the earth, which is the church, is the most horrible thing that you could ever get involved with. It's got all these do's and don'ts and why nots and whines and all of this, and, and, and people are all hypocrites and so forth. Do we have hypocrites in the church? Not here, but most churches do. But if you find one, if you find one, please understand that if you don't like hypocrites, don't lay out a church. It's better to go to church with them than to hell with them. And you know, some people are so perfect without God. You know, like one lady, you know, I can't find a church that's good enough for me. 
I said, well, when you do, don't join it because you'll spoil it. Verse 11. Now notice what verse 11 says. For behold this self-same thing that you saw it after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Did you know that true repentance really makes you careful about your life? And it makes you think about what you're doing. And there's some people that don't give one bit of thought to what they do. They just live and let live. Just whatever the flesh wants to do. Well, true repentance brings about a carefulness in you. Now notice what it says. Yea, what clearing of yourself. You know, we take out all the bad stones, plaster up the walls, clean it with hyssop, scrape the walls. Now that's what repentance does. I say, that's what repentance does. And did you know that there is no feeling in the world that will run you insane faster than guilt? Now, if you don't clear yourself, and that's what clearing is all about, it's getting rid of the guilt. Oh, I remember when I first started serving the Lord, and I remember one time that I, I was doing something the pastor told me I ought not to do. It was not a real big thing except that it was in disobedience to his ministry, and I was doing. I remember going to general conference one time, and I remember Brother Gidrose, who was the Texas District Superintendent. Now, I had some field glasses that most people take field glasses there, or binoculars, because the arena is so big. And I remember getting those, and I remember seeing him all the way across that arena. Now, there must have been 16,000, 17,000 people in there. And I watched him, and you know what? So help me, I felt like he had spotted me, and he knew what I was doing wrong. And every time I'd look through the field glasses at him, it was just like he was looking right at me. I says, oh, no. He knows all about it. Now, isn't that the way guilt works? And this is the reason why people says, do you know, the, do you know listen to me carefully, do you know why most people get to feel like the church is not a place in which they're loved? Nobody loves, everybody's cold and all this, because they live under the cloud of guilt. When they get in the presence of people, they think that those people have them spotted and know what they're doing is wrong, and they feel uncomfortable, so they want to shy away. That's why you've got to clean yourself. Because all you have to do, make one trip to the altar in which you clear yourself and you jump up and you love everybody and you feel like, oh, I tell you, this is the best place in the world. I just wouldn't take it for anything. Great fellowship. Now, what made it so great? It was just like it was ten minutes ago. Oh, the change that took place in you. See, it wasn't in the church. The church is just the same as it was. It's just you. And then, of course, what indignation and did you know what repentance make you in, makes you indignant about certain things I mean you take on indignation you get to the point where you just really would like to give the devil a big black eye just what praise God isn't that right And that, that's the way it is. You, you know, words, you, you, you develop a real resistance and, and hate for sin. Now, it doesn't stop there, though. <clears throat> it says, what fear? And, you know, I think that, that, 
that there's one ingredient that's missing in a lot of people's lives. They don't fear God. Now, I know, listen, I have heard this over and over and over. They say, don't go down in the Sunday school classes and don't tell those little kids that they're going to burn forever and ever and ever in hell. You might upset them emotionally. Listen, America needs an emotional upset. One lady told me one time, she said, I never want, I never go to funerals because, she said, I cry for days. Now, I do not have that much control over that woman, but I think the best thing she could do is look in the obituary and make every funeral for a while. I think there are certain things inside of us that have to be upset. I really believe that. I really believe that. And we need to fear God. You know, I don't think you come to God because you love Him. You have to come to God because you fear Him. And if you can't develop a fear for God, you won't serve Him. Now, I don't care what you say. And, and what's going on in our world now is, well, we just need to make people feel that God loves them. True, however, when they come to God, they don't come because they love God. The Bible says we love Him because He first loved us. You know, God's Spirit got a hold of you and told you you're going to die lost. And God kept dealing with you and pulling you. And man, you came running in like a runner sliding into second base. And you found the power of God and you asked for forgiveness. And all of a sudden, you understood what His love was all about and how much He really loved you because He could have allowed you to die lost. And all of a sudden, you fall in love with Him. We love Him because He first loved us. And listen to me, all of you who are here today. If we need anything, we need a fear of God in our lives. We need it.